Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It's so great to see you today. When Heather and I first got married, uh, she had a dog named Pugsley. And Pugsley was really sweet, super sweet dog. Um, loved play, super friendly, would protect my wife if, if need be. Uh, but if you left Pugsley alone for five minutes, it's as though he became a different dog. He went from super sweet and wonderful to a terror that would absolutely just destroy everything in his sight. Um, I think it was this separation anxiety and maybe just a just a anger or vengeance, but but he would absolutely obliterate things. And the, the things that he did to Heather's apartment before we got married will just make your head spin. But I remember one instance when we left him in my car. It was a beautiful fall evening. The weather was good and we left the window cracked and he was fine. And it was probably about 60, 70 degrees outside. So no sun, all is well for anybody who's worried. But we left him in the car so we could go to dinner and we thought, surely he can see out, he'll be fine. But he wasn't. Uh, long story short, he ripped out seat belts and broke things, and he did about a thousand dollars worth of damage in my car, and and this, <laughs> that was not what I wanted to have happen that day. And 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 that dog, I loved, I loved that dog. He was great, but you just, I just left, found myself going, can I just leave you for five minutes, right? How can I not just leave you for five minutes, and expect you? to not destroy things. And then, but I get it as I get older, I wonder, is that how God feels about us sometimes when he feels like he's kind of put us on a path he wants us on and he lets us go to, leaves us to our own devices for a moment only to see us absolutely just blow it up. I'm confident that, uh, and as we finish our series, The New Exodus, we're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah today as we, we walk through kind of Ezra and Nehemiah together. And, and I hope you've been reading along as you go because there's so much more to this story than, than we can fit into just a sermon series. But as we finish up, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 today. It's literally the last chapter of the two books. I know Nehemiah kind of feels that way, or at least I'm confident he kind of feels that way. As we finish up our story, we, we left off last time, I think, in, in Nehemiah's chapter 8, give or take. But in 9 through 12, we see much of what Nehemiah was sent to accomplish by God, both Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem, the reestablishment of God's people, and the rebuilding of the wall at Jerusalem come to fruition. Uh, we, we, we covered a few weeks ago Nehemiah leading a prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, this prayer of repentance and, and confession and renewal and a, of a covenant before God. And in chapter 10, they commit themselves to that. In fact, in verse 29 of chapter 10, it says, the people of God committed themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses. They committed to honor the Sabbath. They committed that every seventh year they would leave the land uncultivated as God would provide. It's kind of a, a, a homage to the, ex, the original Exodus and God's desire for, for them to trust him on that seventh day of every week when, when manna would not fall from heaven on that one single day during their time in the desert. 
And they would also, at that seven-year mark, they promised to cancel every debt anyone owed one another. They also promised to, to tithe, to give of their first fruits to the things of God, and to give silver to the temple so that it would continue to flourish and grow. And, and one out of every 10 men in and around who had settled in the towns around Jerusalem committed to move to Jerusalem to complete the work, to get the work done. And when we get to chapter 12, we see that the wall has been finished. They finished the walls and they finished the gates. And in chapter 12, verses 27 through 29, we see this, this scenario of, of celebration. In fact, I'm just going to read the first few verses of what is about 15 of them celebrating and describing how joyous and, re, and, and how just accomplished their feeling in the moment to see this temple rebuilt. So, it says at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites who were wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate this joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals and harps and lyres. Can you just see this, this party they're having at, at this work that God has assigned to them that they've completed? There's a level of celebration. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem and from the settlements of the Netophathites, oh my goodness, and from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For they had built themselves settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. And after the priests and Levites had purified them, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. And that's significant because it means they, they have consecrated it or given these things over to God and said, yes, these are, these are God's possessions. And so Nehemiah thinking all is well, right? The, the temple's done, the wall's done, the gates are done, the people are committed to God and they're ready to go. He goes back to Babylon to visit the king to give a report, a report to the person who financed all of this and allowed all of this and made all of this happen. And he goes to report on the progress of Jerusalem and ostensibly, I would guess, to say, the wall is finished, thank you, right? But when, as he arrives, he finds that in his absence, things have changed. He thought he left him in a good place. He thought they would be fine, but he leaves him alone for a little more than five minutes, but he leaves him alone for a minute and bad things happen. So if we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 13, we read verses four through the first part of verse seven. I want you to hear some of the things that he walks back into after having been gone for a, a short period of time and thinking all is well. It says in verse 4, Now before this, the pre that would be before he got back, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Great, the priest should be. And then he was, he was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tenths of grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Have you ever heard of the phrase, don't let a fox in the hen house, or there is a fox in the hen house? That's exactly what Eliashib, the priest, the person who's supposed to be representing God's interest to the people and, and in the temple, has allowed by inviting 
Tobiah. And if you have read, remember us reading about Tobiah in, in chapter 2 and in chapter 6, both, both. He is Tobiah the Ammonite. He is one of the people that is taking every opportunity to undo everything the people of God want to accomplish. He's fought against them. He's argued with them. He's wrote letters to the governors of the area and the king himself trying to stop the progress of this. And here, Elishab the priest has said, look, I'm going to set you up with your own office in the temple. The enemy of God's people, he's setting up with an office in God's temple and it's replacing moving out the offerings made by God's people to support God's priests and God's temple. Do you, do you hear how messed up that is? <laughs> he, he's bringing the fox into the hen house and says, oh, by the way, you can have the best seat. You know what? We're just going to get rid of the hens altogether and you can just take over. It's, it's a symbolic takeover for sure, but, but the symbolism shouldn't be lost. He's allowing some ugly things to happen in the absence of Nehemiah, especially given the reason why they were exiled, why the Jews were exiled to begin with. They forgot about God. They replaced their connection to God with other relationships. They valued the relationships of those people around them more than they valued their relationship with God. And they lost sight of him. And here they are, just months after finishing this physical project that God had asked them to do, celebrating that all of this is done. And it's like they have forgotten that quickly how far they have been carried and what they've been accomplished because God drove it and God allowed it to happen. And God walked them through it. In the verses that follow, Nehemiah's response he kicks Tobiah out, him and all of his stuff, throws it out on the lawn. Essentially, in verse 8, it says he kicks him and his possessions and chucks him out, throws him out. He restores the room to God's purposes, and he discovers that the priests, all the, all the other priests and singers and everyone else that was living in and around the temple had left because all the food was gone. All the, the supply was gone that they had been promised and that they needed in order to survive. They're doing a full-time work with, for God. They don't have time to run their own fields, but if there's nothing to eat and no clothes to wear, they have no choice but to go home. So he finds out they've all left, and he absolutely, in verse 11 of chapter 13, just lights up all the officials and all the leaders, lights them up for allowing any of this to happen. In the verses that follow, they had also forgotten the Sabbath. And they had married women from other tribes that they had been warned specifically, don't do that. We covered that a little bit earlier in the series. It's really not about God disliking people who weren't his people. It's about understanding that his people were a little weak, frankly, and easily sidetracked. They would get pulled away by marrying into other tribes and inviting those other religions, those other little G gods into their world, they would begin to worship them instead. And so God said, don't do that. You're not ready for all that. <laughs> you're not that guy. Trust me, you're not that guy. It's a TikTok meme. But they said, don't do that. He even invokes King Solomon in his experience. In chapter 13, verses 26 and 27, he says, didn't King Solomon... By the way, the wisest and richest man to ever live, 
didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Didn't he already do this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why? Then should we hear about you doing this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women, by doing this? You, we've been down this road before. You watch the greatest among us fall by one of these things, by this. Why would you even try to go down this road? And he ends Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 31, the final with this very short prayer. He says, remember me, my God, with fervor. Nehemiah, who has walked with God in all of this time and has worked with his people and guided them and pushed them and helped defend them and direct them along with Ezra, they've worked together to accomplish these tasks. And he still, at the end of all of this, feels like he's gotten nowhere. He feels like, God, I've given you everything I could have possibly given you to this project. And they still don't get it. Please have mercy on me. The people of God, despite everything he's done for them repeatedly, can't seem to get their act together. No matter how hard they, and frankly, we sometimes try to follow the rules, they end up breaking them. Fortunately, and if the story ended there, that would be bad. (laughs) That would not be a good thing. Because that seems to be the cycle of the people of God, right? They come to know him, they find him, they lean into him. And we do that as groups and as individuals throughout our lives. We lean into a relationship with God and then something sidetracks us, a shiny thing grabs us, or we are unequally yoked. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Or something pulls us sideways and we forget. Fortunately, though, God has provided an ultimate and complete exodus, right? We talked about this as the new exodus. It's the name of the series. Well, he's given us a complete exodus for us in his son, in Jesus Christ. In in Luke chapter nine, verses 28 through 31, it says this, there, there are, it's, a, it's a, an event known as the transfiguration. He says this, about eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became a dazzling white. And suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. There's Moses, the the leader of the original Exodus, right? They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word departure there in verse 31, departure is, the Greek word is exodus. And yes, the same word that is the title of the book and the same word that is used in the title of this series, the idea of a departure, a departure from what was and from what was slavery, frankly, in both of those cases, And in our case, slavery to the world, departure from that and into God's presence, an exodus, an exodus that Jesus, Jesus is talking to Moses in this scene about an exodus that he, that Jesus himself is about to lead. Jesus Jesus accomplished for us the final and complete exodus. He took on the world and he won. 
He covers us in the riches of God's grace and his blood has taken away the sin of the world. That is the final exodus. That is the final connection to God to be removed from slavery and be in relationship with him now and forever. As a result, we can now stand before God with our own righteousness, not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ. It isn't about what we are able to accomplish, but about what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. All we have to do is put our trust in him. And when we do that, that prayer of Nehemiah who says, God, please, please just remember me with favor in the midst of all this, please. I'm trying. God remembers us for our good. And to paraphrase Nehemiah, he will never forget us and we will be with him forever. That is the ultimate exodus. That is the promise of Jesus Christ. And that is the reason we celebrate him each and every day. That is the reason that we lean into him. That is the reason that we trust him. And that is the reason that we can read his word and know that when this is all said and done, God wins and he's inviting you to be with him too. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he'll be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.